Welcome to another episode of Purpose on Purpose, Overcoming Adversity and Creating Resiliency. I am Dorio Herrera with Christy Grease, my faith-inspired visionary friend and partner. And today we have a hard-hitting show with Chef Jeff Henderson. I should say Chef Jeff Henderson, the angel, because of what he's doing in his life right now, what he's up to. But he wasn't always doing that, right? And that's where I want to start, Chef. Tell us a little bit about how you got here and start wow. as far back as you want, brother. Wow. Well, definitely resiliency it was interwoven in uh, my life journey. You know, I'm 56. Uh, I've always, always give thankful to, um, to God that I, I survived and I lived to turn 56. You know, I grew up in Southern California, you know, and I came from a traditional African-American family and poverty stricken communities, single parent home, you know, father, mother divorced young, mother had the man up and woman up to try to raise myself and my sister, you know, not valuing education, not having middle-class values. One begins to be curious about how the world works. And, you know, when you think about young street hustlers, what drives, the hustle, the grind, the grit, and so many young people, and especially black and brown communities, is the one desire is to help put food on the table and help the mother who struggles every day to make ends meet. Uh, what the, the, the dark side of that is, that grind, that hustle, and resiliency to survive, ultim- uh, uh, a lot of times is latent with, with, with the criminal world. And so there is a heavy, strong criminal culture in poor communities, because sometimes when you don't have options, you don't know your gifts, uh, you don't have the relationships, you don't get the access um, and stuff like that, your options are very limited. And when your options are limited, you, you, you embrace those hustles that you see before you, the drug dealers, the pimps. Uh, the players, uh, the, the, the three car Molly guys, you know, the guys who who make a dollar out of 15 cents. And I was that young kid that never grasped public education, never worked for me. Um, I didn't see no value in it. No one ever connected education to the house on the hill with the white picket fence, nor the American dream. I felt if my school teacher had a cultural and emotional connection to me and connected the dots, Here's education. Mm-hmm. Here's success. Here's the house on the hill with the white picket fence, the American dream. I was that kid that you had to make it make sense to me. You have to explain it to me. I was that young kid who always wanted to know why. If you have to get up to go to school every day from the first grade, kindergarten to the 12th grade, well, why? Why'd well, have to do that? What, how is that going to help me eat? How is that going to help me, you know, succeed in life? And so I just went through school in survival mode. But I always was a, a streetpreneur, a hustlepreneur, entrepreneur, however you want to say it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I had a the number one newspaper route. I was a newspaper boy. Uh, I sold gourmet chocolate candy. These guys would come in the neighborhood in these white vans, take us up to Rancho uh, Palos Verdes and sell gourmet chocolates. I sold out every night. I developed communication skills early on the streets. They call it gift the gap. In the corporate world, they call you a great communicator. Same thing. Right. You know, you, you can communicate, <laughs> talk, uh, negotiate, 
uh, talk yourself into stuff and out of stuff. And uh, and so all these things, these skills that I had naturally didn't really know they were skills, didn't know they were transferable until after coming out of prison for mm -hmm. 10 years. And many of the skills that I use to be successful today came at the height of uh, my drug career, which is a part of my life I'm not proud of. You know, I am a co-architect and uh, of the 1980s crack cocaine pandemic. You know, I started selling crack in 1983 wow. when it first came uh, into poor black and brown communities. And what's funny, and not really funny, but what's ironic is that none of us, I didn't know what a passport was. We never been across the border, never saw an 18 wheeler truck, never been on an airplane. How did that shit get here? Somebody came up with uh, an idea a fine or brilliant financial idea to come up with a cheaper version of, of cocaine because we all know cocaine was the rich man's drug of the 1970s where the wall street boys the millionaires snorted coke with a hundred dollar bills you know poor black and brown folks and poor white folks couldn't yeah. afford powder cocaine so chef, the crack me, version let me ask you a question chef when was the first yeah. time you got in trouble when's the first time you got introduced to the man in a uniform, you know, when was the first time? I remember my first time, right? Yeah. And I still connect to that deeply. And, you know, I had different choices I could make at that time, right? The first time I got held accountable. Yeah. When was the first time you got in trouble? Well, I've been in trouble my whole life, so I can go back to elementary. Consequences. I mean, with yeah, legal with, consequences. Yeah. Yes, was it was in 19, um, 1987 uh, when I got okay. indicted by the feds okay. uh, is when I was held accountable uh, for my criminal uh, lifestyle. Um, and, and I blame, you know, back in those days, I, I, I blamed. It wasn't my fault. It was the white man. It was a judge. It was a police informant. Everyone's but me. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't until mm -hmm. I had that epiphany while I was in prison. And that epiphany was the fact that I realized that it was my fault, that no one forced me into doing what I was doing. And it wasn't until I began to hold myself accountable in prison mm -hmm. that I was able to begin to heal uh, from the trauma of poverty, heal uh, uh, from you know uh, my criminal mm -hmm. lifestyle. And that whole transition took place in the darkest place on earth. And sometimes that happens for some people in prison. Um, some people don't change in prison. You know, mm -hmm. there's no magic wand mm -hmm. to uh, you figuring out how to fix your stuff. You right. know, uh, there's certain experiences. Uh, it could become visual. You can have an experience. You can hear something. Somebody can present something in front of you and it becomes an aha moment. Mm -hmm. My aha moment was in prison. You know, when when for the first what time was I was that told, experience, I'm sorry. What was that experience? That aha moment Expe for you? This aha moment. The, so there, there there never can be one aha moment that transform your life. I always say there's mm -hmm. multiple aha moments mm -hmm. that leads to the big aha moment. So the little micro aha moments came when. Black men, men who look like me, who came from my same lived experience, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. They told me I was smart. I have potential. That this really isn't the place for you. 
you got caught up, you made poor choices, those little aha moments. And then as I begin to read and value reading, I begin to read about men who look like me, who come from the same lived experience of poverty, where were were international businessmen, were intellectuals, were entrepreneurs, was head of banks, and you know, they lived in the suburbs. I'm like, shit, my school teacher never told me there were people that looked like me that were non-criminal who were thirty-three. So that was another aha moment that says, hell, if they can do it, mm -hmm. I can do it. But really what brought confirmation for me, mm. the big aha moment is when I was in federal prison with Ivan Bolsky, the co-defendant of Michael Milken, junk bond king, multi-billionaire. I was in prison. I, was, I first went into federal prison when it was called club feds, tennis courts, swimming pools, racquetball courts. Uh, we even had T-bone steaks when I was in prison. First one yeah, in. My experience was a little bit different with federal prison. I had yeah, to you say. came later. Like I was in there. <laughs> we, different, man. we didn't get T-bone steaks and we didn't have tennis yeah. courts. We had softball fields, but we didn't have tennis yeah. courts. <laughs> yes. Well, all that changed in 1992 when yep. 60 Minutes did a special because somebody exposed taxpayers' dollars paying for cable, chlorine for the swimming pools and all that other stuff. Those things change. So I became friends with the Wall Street boys. And these were wealthy, upper middle class, highfalutin, highbrow uh, white men. And I've never associated with white men before. I never had a meal with a white man until I was in prison. And uh, I spoke one day at Toastmasters. And the Wall Street guy came up to me after Toastmasters. I started telling my story. He said, Jeff. He said, man, you're a smart guy. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, what makes me smart? He says, when you was on the street, you amassed a million dollars at the age of 19. You managed a diverse workforce of a sales team. You understood distribution, transportation, logistics, profit and loss. And you, under and you, understood, you understood the culture of business. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he says, all you have to do is change the product mm. and build character and integrity. Boom. That was wow. the big aha moment for me, Dario. That was the big thing. aha moment for me because I never heard those words, marketing, uh, branding, yeah. public relations, communication. Yeah. There was all different other words that we use on the streets, but it was the parallel. Remember if the school teacher <laughs> would have connected education to the American dream, Maybe I wouldn't have went down that route, but the Wall Street guy connected the hustles, legitimate hustle and illegal hustle. Right. And that that's what that was a transformational period for me besides learning how to cook. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we do here is really start to identify the different parts of what creates resiliency. And what I just heard from you is the first part was you owning your role in being in federal prison in 1987 when you got indicted. You recognizing that it was your choice to go that route, that no one forced you, and there you got some power over your future. Because if you blame yeah. if you blame your situation yeah. to someone else, they have the power. When you own that yourself, then you start to recognize, hey, if I created that for myself, I can create something different right yes and that sounds yes. like 
when you started to make that kind of realization and turn that into action every day and then got reinforced by those relationships you were building while you were doing your time? Yes. But I also want to go back and say, too, for certain citizens in this country, there are circumstances and historical actions that makes it easier to make those choices to become criminalized. Of course. Of course. Yeah. See, so so now when you come from when you come from a privileged background and you have access to the power structure and the financials and you make a choice it's a clear choice, mm-hmm. a clear mm-hmm. choice of you having to hold yourself accountable one day. Mm-hmm. But I, I still, I, it's still a choice. Mm-hmm. And I still made that choice. And I own that choice. And today I'm trying to fix the damage of the choices that I made during the 1980s, which built up what we call today $182 billion massive prison industrial complex. Yeah. Which has wow. De- which has de- devastated poor black and brown communities. One out of four black males between 18 and 29 are in prison. One out of seven Hispanic males wind up going to prison between that same age bracket. And, you know, we all know there's 70 million Americans with criminal records. But when you look at per capita, black and brown make up the majority uh, of that. So, I mean, you can go on. Yeah. You get indicted in 87. You get sentenced. You go through your process. You get out. I don't want to tell the punchline here, but you went from there. Then you did some pretty cool stuff that I want you to share. And then you got you went from basically prison to Oprah to, you know, what you're doing today. And I want to kind of get into, you know, those steps, because to me, that's the the journey of resiliency happening. Like yes. whether the adversity was yeah. thrust upon you or whether you made active choices that created that adversity for you, there was still adversity and you had to face that music. You had to do the time. And when you got out, no one handed you anything. Yes. And yes. you went about correcting, you know, the wrongs you had done and and moving forward and becoming the man that I admire today that is doing incredible things with our youth. So I, I want to get to that, but but give us some insight into that journey. Help us understand kind of the layers and yes. and how you yes. navigated that. Yes. And because I even along the way, there's gotta be self-doubt. There's gotta be what am I doing? Do I deserve this? And all that kind of stuff happening while you keep moving forward. Yes. There's so much power in adversity. Let me tell you, adversity is the builder Mm. of grit. Yeah. Adversity is the foundation of grit. Mm -hmm. Now, how I got to Oprah, to movie deals, to book deals, to television deals was all by being in the right place at the right time. Uh, heart being in the right place. I've never chased any celebrity, television, books. Everything that came to me came because my resiliency in mastering my gift. 
and my one of my hidden gifts. So 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 in prison, I discover my gift, and and, yeah. and this is what I say: the gift is the one thing or two things that you do extremely well at a very high level is the gift. And when you hear people like Marcus Buckingham, when you hear Malcolm Gladwell talk about the 10,000 hour rule to mastery, mm -hmm. anything that you do mm -hmm. repetitively, that you are gifted to do, that you were born to do, that's in your DNA, DNA success is guaranteed. The reason why people fail in life, the reason why people stay frustrated in life, because they're operating, hustling, grinding, trying to pivot outside of their purpose. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a purpose. Yes. That's so Everybody good. was born with a gift. But you have to figure out what that gift is. And that gift is revealed to you through exposure and experiences. I got fired on the Cadillac crew in prison. The Cadillac crew was a 20-minute gig that all the wealthy Wall Street gig guys had because they didn't want to work. They were very elitist. I jumped on the Cadillac crew because I wanted <laughs> access to these brilliant minds. So I got fired on that job because I took advantage, wasn't going, and got put in the kitchen on pot and pan detail. What is that, Cadillac? Is that an orderly job? Orly, what yeah. yeah what is that? Board. The Cadillac is the little stick with the dustpan on there. Yeah. Yeah, I had a son that yeah. and need someone <laughs> to clean up the bathroom for him so he wouldn't have yeah, to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stuff and like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And see, back then you can smoke cigarettes in prison. You can't anymore. So there were right. cigarette butts all over the yard. I get fired on my job. They send me to the hole. I come out the hole. I'm on a pot and pan detail. I'm in the prison kitchen. I see all this passing of food, the no look pass, and I realize. The guys who eat in the prison kitchen get to eat better than everybody else. I was wondering how these guys was getting so swole and big access to the carbs and the protein. And here I was <laughs> skipping, skipping plates, right? So then I'm working in the kitchen on pot and pans. So I always say in my story, where others saw a punishment, I saw an opportunity. And I started helping mm -hmm. the cooks. Got really, really good at cooking, flavoring, speed, everything. I even focus on presentation on the prison trays. So I eventually got promoted to the number, the grade one pay cook. You know what that is, Dario, grade one pay? You was probably I, grade I one I had a retainer when I was doing my time. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you had, to, you had the kitchen cook's own retainer? Absolutely. My man, I had hey. I would have had you. I had to get the protein. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would have been all in your pocket too, bro. Let yeah. me tell you. Yeah, so, so, so. <laughs> So what I did is once I became the head inmate cook, the, the black inmates controlled the hot food. The mm -hmm. white inmates controlled the bake shop. The Hispanics mm -hmm. controlled the serving line. So it was very segregated in prison. So, I mean, that's just how it is. You know, you ride with your people. Uh, you ride with the, the area codes you come from. Like if you're mm -hmm. from Vegas and you're in the feds, that Vegas card usually stays together as a brotherhood. I was right. out of San Diego at the time, mm -hmm. which is 619. And mm -hmm. then so I launched a underground catering business. And it's ironic. I got a second chance catering hat on uh, right now. So I, I sold red onions, uh, packages of seasoning. I sold a uh, scrap chicken. Uh, I sold bananas. And then I would trade with the white guys in the bake shop for their cookies and cinnamon rolls. And then I would bar use as a barter to get my haircuts, new T-shirts. 
and the Stamps. Wall Street guys. I took care of them for their. What'd you say? Stamps, commissary, right? Yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah Dario can do a whole show on this. He he's more updated than I am now. I've been out twenty five <laughs> years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so I got really good at it. So I was so I was back negotiating. So here go the transferable skills from mm -hmm. selling candy newspapers into the drug business. Became a millionaire at nineteen. Custom built homes, all the luxury cars. Now I'm in prison, taking those same transferable skills. And when the white guy connected. Uh, 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 the corporate lingo to what I was doing my whole life, marketing, selling, branding, relationship building, managing a diverse workforce. That was the golden ticket for me coming out of prison. And then everyone starts saying, Jeff, you ought to think about being a chef. And I started doing research, read up on some of the top black chefs in the country, Marcus Samuelson, Patrick Clark, Robert Gatsby. And I said, wow, here's some black guys that's cooking on an international level with Thomas Keller, Joe Robichon, Alan DeCoste, fine French cooking. I said, OK, I'm going to take a stab at it. And I got out of prison October the 2nd, uh, 1996. And I made my way to Beverly Hills, where one of those chefs I read about in USA Today gave me my first job. So when you talk about pivoting, when you talk about being able oh, to switch up, when you talk about mental toughness, when you talk about... Uh, a grit and grind. You know, I grit and grinded in a very dangerous kitchen. You know, at Terminal, there was two murders when I was there. There were lifers there. So I said, right, working in the kitchen in Beverly Hills, that's a walk in the park. I worked with killers, mafia guys, Mexican mafia, gang leaders, the whole nine. And I went into that kitchen and, and Chef Robert taught me the, the tricks of the trade. And I never looked back. And I took that and I parlayed that into a multi-million dollar culinary career. But it wasn't until after uh, I was discovered at Bellagio in 2007, 2008, when a, a guy from New York, a literary agent reached out. He said he heard my story um, because, again, part of my life I'm not proud of. And I want to put this back on a record. But I was known as a cook on the street. I used to cook cocaine. I used to cook kilos of cocaine into multiple kilos of crack, you know, uh, which was devastating wow. to, to my community. And so so the, the kitchen has always been like the crystal ball of my life, even as a young kid growing up poor, opening the refrigerator and it's hollow. There's no choices for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I was always hungry as a kid. I used to steal money from my mother and whoever had a pocketbook around me, I would steal money so I can go get food for my sister and I from fast food places and stuff like that because I never got enough to mm. eat. And then I wind up cooking cocaine in the kitchen. Then I wind up in the prison kitchen. Then I wind up running kitchens, $30 million kitchens at the Bellagio Caesars and Hard Rock Hotel. And and he, he heard about my wow. story and, and he said, uh, would you like to write a book? I said, uh, you know, I kind of thought about it, but I, I never put action into it because I was content with my life. And so he flew out to Las Vegas and we sat in the, my dining room at Cafe Bellagio. Uh, he wrote up a proposal in two hours and he said, I'll be back. I'm going to New York. I'm going to sell this book. And within a week, my life story cooked from the streets, from the stove, from cocaine to Fagua, went into auction with 10 of the top publishing houses in New York. It was like crazy. I said, they want to write about me, you know? And then as I started yeah. to analyze my life, you know, um, how extraordinary it was, but only extraordinary in the sense of how I could become a role model in a measuring stick to other people who have come from the same lived experiences I have. So he wrote the book 
um, I, I wrote the book, uh, went on Oprah. Oprah, so I got the book deal, finished the book. He called me, said, Jeff, you're not going to believe this. Uh, we got you on Oprah. I'm like, Oprah? <laughs> I'm working at the Bellagio making $65,000 a year. Living on South Las Vegas Boulevard in a two-bedroom apartment with my wife, our three kids, and my sister-in-law and her daughter in a two-bedroom mm -hmm. apartment. We had a Toyota Camry. I had an old beat-up Tahoe. And so now I'm getting ready to go on Oprah, tell my story to the world. Went on Oprah, told my story to the world. Book went to New York Times bestseller list. Two hours after Oprah aired, I was in New York interviewing with Gail King. And the phone rang. I said, hello. I said, Chef Jeff, may I help you? He said, uh, hey, Chef Jeff, what's going on, man? This is Will Smith. I said, hey, man, who's playing on my phone? One of my homies was just clowning with me. Then my agent was on, Mike Saltis. He said, Jeff, this is Big Will from Philly. Then I got real cool. Hey, man, what's up, Will? Yeah, what's up, man? And then he said, look, I want to meet you. I saw you on Oprah. We have your books. I'm like, yeah, I want to meet you. So he sent down his driver, his buddy, who was driving for him that day, who happened to be Heavy D, the heavyweight lover. You guys remember Heavy D? Yeah, I remember Heavy D. Yeah. 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 yeah so, so I'm, and Heavy D comes. I'm like, man, I'm rolling the car with Heavy D, rap royalty. So they brought me up to the set of I Am Legend in Brooklyn. And, you know, Will, Will had a, a trailer like a two city blocks long, virtual golf course, two stories. It was pimped out. And I walked in the trailer and, you know, so I'm an analyst, you know, coming from the streets. I got eyes like all around my head. So when I walked into the trailer, I saw my books like all around the trailer with bookmarkers in there. And I think Oprah set this up with oh. Will to say, hey, Will, you got to watch this guy's story. You might be interested in it because it happened like too fast. Boom. And then yeah. first person came in in the trailer was Steve Tish from the Tish family. You know, he owns um, Escape Artists along with Jason Blumenthal, Todd Black. They do all the Denzel's and Will mm -hmm. Smith movies. So the Tish family, the big construction family in New York, they own Boulevard Watch, the Giants and stuff. So he came in. He was a surfer, had long hair. Uh, he, he, you know, had baggy jeans on, some bands. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know who none of these people were. He came in, and I didn't know who he was until I left, and I Googled him. I'm like, I was just with a billionaire, my first billionaire, you know? And then Will came in about 30 minutes <laughs> <My> later. <first. laughs> yeah, yeah, my first. I've met quite a few now, you know? And then so Will walked in the trailer. I bet with you the have. <laughs> yeah, you remember the dog on uh, the German Shepherd on I Am Legend? You guys seen that movie, right? Yeah. Will Smith movie, I Am Legend. Yeah. When the end of the world came, he got real skinny. Uh, there was a vaccine. It was it was a pandemic, actually. <laughs> wow. That's ironic. And then so he came in and we chopped it up. He brought me <laughs> on the set and, you know, he loved my story. By five o'clock that evening, uh, we had a, a multi-million dollar motion picture deal. And, um, and this is how I bought my house that I live in now. They broke me a check off for like 750000 and then uh, they, they brought in a writer named Jerry Stahl. He wrote uh, Permanent Midnight, Bad Boys 1 and Bad Boys 2. So it is a script. Uh, it's sitting on the shelf now, but I'm hoping, you know, one day that, you know, it comes out to that movie. And after that happened, I was on the phone an hour later with Food Network and uh, they offered me a show on the Food Network. And I launched the Chef Chef Project. And then I got another book deal, which was my first cookbook deal. And then uh, it was time for me to get back to work because Bellagio MGM gave me a month leave of absence, right? And then so mm -hmm. um, 
uh, my wife called me. She said, honey, American uh, U.S. Airlines wants you to speak at their uh, leadership retreat in Scottsdale. I said, OK, cool. I'm thinking, you know, they'll pay me a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred or something. Um, I'm like, yeah, OK, good. She called back. Two hours later, screaming in the phone. I thought something happened to the kids. She said, you're not going to believe this. Honey, you're not, you're not going to believe how much they're going to pay for you to speak. I said, what, what, what? $30,000. And I said, oh. Wow. I Googled up public speaking. And I said, I'm in the wrong business. Get <laughs> the uh, gab. Yeah. I want to interject here for a second. Yeah, go um, ahead. Go ahead, man. There's a lot to unpack there. That was, I mean, there's a lot yeah, of. Sorry about Yeah. Uh, nuggets in there, um, and it's just so good. I mean, you know, something to marvel at, really, and to be inspired by. Uh, I connected to so much, like looking for dollars to eat, and my sister and I did that. And and in our neighborhood, the closest fast food place was Burger King, you know, and the next one was Wendy's. And I remember waiting for people to leave their salad bar plates on the table so we can take them up and say, hey, we need a new plate because you could do all you can eat Wendy's salad bar at the time, you know? So we yes. had all those scriptures I connect and that's the power of storytelling, you yes. know? And that, that's part of sharing creates that connection. You know, and you and I connected, the first time we met, we connected, you know, yes. over experience and, and I, I found the goodness of your energy intoxicating really. But the second thing is, you know, going back to this formula for resiliency, right? You you talk about the first one was ownership. Yes. The second one was connecting the purpose, right? And yes. the third one was, uh, whether you meant to say it or not, you know, underneath what you just said is taking action. Yes. Right. Because a lot of times yeah. when you're faced with, I only speak for myself. I remember after I got out um, several months afterwards, uh, the person I was with at the time said, you're acting like you're still in prison. Like I was on my couch with my laptop, you know, on my lap and I wouldn't go out of the house. And she said to me, why are you acting like you're still in prison? And then it hit me. I was acting like I was still in prison. I wasn't taking action. Right. And I, and I even, and I've said this before, like some, somewhere along the way, I lost my boldness when I was young and decided to run for office at 22 and got elected in county commission and candidate for Congress. I was bold. Right. I took I action. And I yeah, worked I my ass you. off to, to you know, accomplish that. And then, you know, with the indictment and being convicted and the time, you know, that boldness kind of eroded. But what I heard, heard you say right now, the antidote to that is ownership, connecting the purpose and taking action. Taking action. Win your gift. In your gift. Finding your that gift. thing yes. that you are, you, you shouldn't be taking action in something that you're miserable at. When right. you find something that, that that gives you that spark, gives you that joy, um, and and then you take action, and and like you said, you know, Chef Jeff, that, that it's hours, ten thousand hours and more to to um, harness that gift and those talents, yes. and and be yes. able to to pay your dues in you know a way. Yes, yes, and you know what? what I, what's I think. Go ahead. What's interesting as well too is that. A lot of times we spend too much time, money and effort behind trying to become extraordinary at what we naturally suck at. Right. And, 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 and exactly. because, yeah, we, we're just, you know, yeah. you stay in your lane and you put people, subject matter experts around you where you're weak at, where you suck at. And if you yeah. look at any successful person all the way from Bill Gates to 
Mark Zuckerberg to Jay-Z, you know, they put top people around them. And that's what a great CEO, a great leader, a business owner does. Even a chef, you know, most chefs don't do pastries. Well, they hired a badass pastry chef, you know, yeah. a badass baker, yeah. you know, a badass yeah. breakfast cook, you know. So so this is the things that I've, I've taken from my own resiliency. Uh, and you talked about action, you know, um, I action slash execution, execution, mm -hmm. execution is that we have to get to the point where we can't just talk about it. We have to be about it by putting mm -hmm. in the work. And that's where that resiliency comes in. That's where that mental toughness comes in. And sometimes coming out of prison, when you stayed home, Dario, and you laid on the couch, I had moments like that too. And my wife had to snap me back because mm -hmm. when you're locked in a cage and you've been dehumanized, you know, that, that, that's, that's trauma. And until we're able to heal from that trauma of being handcuffed, being strip searched bodily from top to bottom, sticking your tongue out, bending over, doing all of that for them, looking for contraband that impacts you in the long term, And we call that institutionalized. And you don't realize that level of institutionalization until you get out of prison. Go ahead, Dario. No, I, I connected with that big time. I mean, for the first three months, you know, I got strip searched every day and I was invited into the CEO's love shack every day. And the strip searches were very close and very personal and not at all in keeping with what I understand a strip search to be. And to the point that it was a level of sexual abuse mm. at the time where I was serving as a law library for Ted Kaczynski with CEOs telling me to wax, strip, and buff a floor that no one went into ever, every day. And that was my experience, you know, and that's just one of many experiences, but, you know, there was a point where I had to decide, like, am I going to allow this to derail me the rest of my life? You know, is this going to be like, the chapter that, you know, ends the story. And I decided it wasn't going to be right. So even though I, I, I had difficulty socializing and accepting that I wasn't any longer there, I had to work. And that's when I created the company. And that's when I landed my first client and my second client. And before you know it, I have a big agency that is doing strong work uh, in an area that I was passionate about and, mm -hmm. and very good at on top of it, you know, so I, I connect with it big time, you know, going from that environment and how it kind of hangs over you without you even realizing it sometimes. I, I'll speak for myself without even me realizing it sometimes. It was hanging over me and, and robbing me, depriving me, stealing my boldness away from me. So to hear you say that, you know, those three pieces, you know, and, and then I really connect with the execution part because I've always been weak in that area. I've always been a good strategist. I've always been strong at creativity. Uh, and I've always been a strong opener and a good finisher but that execution in the middle has never been my strong suit. And it's, I'm mm -hmm. developing that now uh, mm -hmm. because that's the position I put myself in. But, uh, you know, that, that whole combination, man, of ownership, connecting to purpose, you know, action, execution. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a strong recipe, you know, for cooking up some resiliency. Yes. No, big time. And now, man. And now you're doing some cool stuff that I want to hear about. But I know Christy has a question for your comment, but I want to hear about the, the, the project. I, yeah, let me in there. Let me in here. Yeah, come on. Yes, yes. Well, be bold. Be bold. Being, being, being 
the white girl who, who, <laughs> who you know grew up in a privileged background um i can't necessarily relate to everything that you guys went through my heart does and and i have so much compassion for both of you and i um i see my friends um who have grown up in really really difficult um environments and and how they've been able to overcome and one of the things that's so difficult for me being um a protective person a, a mama bear and somebody who defends um those who are vulnerable is seeing how the general public doesn't give a second chance to so many people and it, it really like is so upsetting to me because i believe in the you know the power of redemption and the power of a second chance and the fact that you both did your time and you know the the fact that that chef jeff you were in there and you had this aha moment and then you realized that you had to that you, that the only way you were going to be empowered was to take accountability for your actions that that would create the space for your your future and and for all these things that you're doing so my question is how how do you you know you went to beverly hills and the chef gave you a chance how do other people in your position and it may not even be somebody going to jail but somebody who's really screwed up and now they have this you know this thing hanging over their head um that they that they need to get past in order to move forward and and be the gift that god made them to be can you just give some advice to people that are that are struggling and and maybe haven't had that chance or had somebody stand in front of them but what can they do to have people see that that they've been redeemed and that they they should get a second chance yes well you know to me that boils down to what advice i would have is that no matter what you're pursuing in life your gift your career is relationships everything resolves around relationships mm -hmm. and creating those relationships that will allow you access. And what I tell guys coming out of prison or folks who have had setbacks, who never been to prison, is never chase money. Never chase money. Mm -hmm. You chase relationships. Relationships lead to opportunities. Mm. Opportunities lead to the money. Money will always come. And building a brand. Does your the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you conduct yourself, does that reflect that criminal past? Does that reflect the bias and unconscious biases in middle class America? Mm -hmm. You see, for me, I had to build a brand. I mean, clean shave my face. I took makeup, covered my earring hole up, started getting my hands manicured, clean shave head, got the one hundred and fifty dollar yeah. braggart Egyptian white chef coats, invested in my grill. Yeah. Because I understood, I, I love your candor because chef. it is what it is. I, I love yeah. your candor, and I love how you give it to us straight, bro. Honest yeah. to God, and, and, yeah. And the thing is, like me coming to Bellagio or Beverly Hills, most likely ninety nine point nine percent, I'm going to be dealing with a upper middle class, possible wealthy white male or female. And I understand that everybody has biases. I don't care who you are, where you come from. Sometimes they're conscious, sometimes they're unconscious. So I had to deflect that prison stigma and cover that felony jacket up to where people would say, oh my God, Jeff, Jeff is 
really hard to believe that you were incarcerated because I became very articulate over the years from reading books and having conversations with highly educated people, which helped me get access and build those relationships where they were able to look beyond my criminal past, you know, because most people have a heart. And if you be upfront and, and be 100 uh, when you're trying yes. to build that relationship, you know, people will say, hey, you know what? I, I screwed up before, man. You know, I, listen, everybody has some stuff on them. You know, and my, and, exactly. and my line was always, look, when I was young, I made some poor choices. You know, I didn't make mistakes. People use the word mistake. You didn't make a mistake. You made a choice. Like a mistake is for a child. Child, kids make mistakes. Adults, we make poor choices, bad judgment. And I got into the drug game mm -hmm. and I, I drugs and went to prison. But in prison, I grew up. I became a man in prison. Prison worked for me. Here's my inmate proof package. I came home armed with 27 certificates, a high school diploma, the ability to cook. And I would say, all I'm looking for is an opportunity to showcase my skills and become an asset versus a liability to this organization. And I used to offer instead of a 90 day mm. probation, give me a 30 day probation. I worked free for two or three weeks just to show you my get down in the kitchen. And so we have to, when, when you come from adverse backgrounds, we have to be very creative and very strategic in moving forward because of that choice and because of those circumstances. And so timing is everything, you know, operating in your purpose and your gift is everything, your passion, you know, being coachable, you know, uh, understanding uh, um, uh, the culture in the workplace. You know, you have to be able to, to to talk your way into that brand, into that culture and become attractive. You know, but you, then self-love falls in that. You have to love yourself. You have to believe in yourself. You, you can't look in the mirror and see an ex-convict. I look in the mirror and I see a brilliant, strategic, smart, driven, gangster, socialpreneur. That's what I see when I look in the mirror. <laughs> yes. I let nobody tell me yes. different. So that's I mean, what I you are. That's the fourth part of resiliency then, is looking in the mirror and seeing what you want others to see and believing it and having self-love. That's, that's the right. fourth part. I'm hearing that's the fourth part to what And that doesn't mean resiliency. you're not going to have moments where you, yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I want to ask, well, ask you a, I, an easy question. You, I was just going to say, and all the things that you're sharing with us, you, you help other young upcoming chefs do and and and, and other um young people who have been incarcerated or maybe have been in trouble can you tell us about that yes you know uh, i always said that one day i wanted to open up a kitchen in the hood you know and use food as a therapeutic tool to deal with the trauma uh, in the issues of young black and brown and even poor, I, I say black and brown because those are the kids that come to my kitchen. You know, I, I haven't, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I haven't had a, a lot of experience with uh, uh, troubled young white males, but young Hispanic and black males mostly uh, who have mm -hmm. uh, been dealing with trauma. And a lot of that trauma is generational trauma. A lot of these parents, yeah you know, uh, uh, pass that trauma, that baggage off on these kids. And many of these kids that I deal with, some of them have a 14 year age difference between mother and son and daughter. You know, many of these kids live in foster care, foster homes, safe homes. They've been locked up, armed robbery, gang banging, uh, violence, anger, all kinds of things like that. And so we use the kitchen as a safe place 
to teach culinary arts, hospitality, and life skills. And so, so my job is not to influence or make these kids become chefs or cooks. I want them to be better humans than they were the day they walked in. I help mm -hmm. them find that gift through field trips, through exposure, through coaching and counseling and opportunities. And they respect me because we come from the same lived experiences. So I spend a couple of hours sharing my story. You know, how I used to get down on the street and pictures of what I used to look like back when I was their age, draped in gold, you know, diamonds. You know, back then we had the real stuff today. These kids are getting that stuff from the swap meeting, getting killed for fake jewelry. And I always tell them, don't value, <laughs> oh. you know, yeah, don't value vehicles, you know, you know. And, and I want to say one thing, too, back to the school and, and, and Dario and, and the things that we've been through is that this is what I believe today that really was my aha moment is when I had the shift in value systems because values are at the core of decision-making. When you value your life, your freedom, your family, that helps you not make certain choices. Choices are driven by your value systems. And when I had a shift in how, what I valued and how I value myself and my freedom, I knew at that point that I had decriminalized. I knew at that point from sitting in a prison in a cage, you know, controlled movement, gun towers, and things got harder for me after 1992, um, the, being humili humiliated, dehumanized. I, I knew that freedom was the most precious gift, not a Bentley not a 500 SEL drop top, not the gold, the diamonds, the, the, the lifestyle is freedom. Being able to have choices where you can grab a remote control and watch five, 600 channels, have hot coffee when you want, ice cold. Imagine not having ice in any drink. Imagine not having the ability to open up a refrigerator and have choices for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this is at the core of what I teach these kids, the things that they take advantage, they take for granted, their freedom. So I draw parallels and experiences all through cooking to say, value your freedom, value your life, that you are gifted and you're special and you know how to pivot, you're mentally tough, you've made it this far, you've been through hell and back. And so that's the mission of the Chef Chat Project is to disrupt the neighborhood, the prison pipeline and help these young kids learn some life skills and to love themselves and pull their pants up to change the way they talk and change and shift their value systems. That's what's at the core of the Chef Chat Project. And we're a nonprofit 501c3 self-funded. Uh, we don't receive any federal grants or any of those things. Uh, my family and I, we do get some donations. So we're hopefully soon we'll be getting funded so we can really get the people uh, uh, in there who I really need. I need psychiatrists. You know, I need therapists. You know, I need life coaches. Yes. You know, I want to bring in a team of senior citizens, grandmothers and grandfathers, the love on these young boys and girls. Many of our young girls are highly mm. promiscuous highly promiscuous at a young age because mm -hmm. they watch their mothers prostitute themselves to put food on the table. Yeah. These young girls don't even know how to sit at a, in a chair and keep their legs closed. 
these young girls out here are in multiple, multiple relationships because they seen their mother in multiple relationships because that's how women of poverty pay their bills and survive. It's a survival mechanism. It comes from low self-esteem. And then you have these young boys out here who are violent, who are killing drive-bys and things of that nature. Where does that violence come from? That violence comes from the trauma. We have one young boy who's 14 year age in between him and his mother. The father has nothing to do with him. The boy sit there and watch the boyfriend break his mother's jaw right in front of the face. And he was so young, he couldn't even defend his mother. So we ask ourselves, why do we have generations of killers on the street where these kids snap just like that and pull a trigger? They have no value for life because they've never been valued. So they don't know what value means. So they risked their whole life to shooting somebody because the way someone looked at them or a certain color or a certain neighborhood they may come from. And a lot of that comes from self-hatred. So there's a huge educational piece that a lot of these organizations don't deal with because a lot of people who run organizations that are there to impact change in this population of people do not share the lived experiences. I call them 501c3 hustlers. These are folks who create five nonprofits to get a paycheck. You know, you know, they're really not doing the work. They don't have the right people in place. And, and so this is what we're doing. And we launched Second Chance Catering. Uh, we're taking our kids to Red Rock Country Club uh, on the 14th of next month. And one of the multimillionaire um, uh, 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 real estate brokers has taken us into a 15,000 square foot mega mansion. Uh, we're going fishing. Uh, we've been going to fine dining restaurants oh. because I want to expose these kids to another life. Awesome. That's achievable. You know, that there's, the world is bigger than Northtown or West Side or the East Side. So it's about exposure. It's about creating those opportunities. So that's what the Chef Jeff Project is. So I, I, can, yeah. I can ramble on. I can go on and on. I, I love what the I do. Thing, the first yeah. thing I connected And I can to listen you. to you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first thing I connected to you most on was that you don't just talk about it. You are about it. And I've been to where you run the Chef Jeff Project out of. And you could have chosen a swanky place and you chose a box in North Las Vegas in the middle of where these young black men and black girls and, and, and brown women and brown boys, you know, have their challenges. You're in that neighborhood and, and I respect you for it. And I respect the work you're doing with them. You're not just giving them, you know, uh, a skill that can be marketable. You're giving them uh, self-worth and, and, you know, helping them connect to, you know, someone who can be loved, you know, yes. and, and as, a, as a young boy who was abandoned, who, who had no self-love and I, something I still struggle with, like I connect to that work big time because that's going to change those young men and women. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not wearing a hat, but if I, yeah, if I right. were, you know, I take off my hat and, uh, to you. And, and I think as we close off, I want to share just one thing. My favorite thing to cook when I was, I would volunteer during the, the holidays because I wanted to eat first. Uh, when I was doing, you know, my time for my stuff and I, I got put on the uh, cinnamon roll detail and I learned to cook a mean cinnamon roll. <laughs> right? and, and to this day, I can cook a mean cinnamon roll. But I know that you, as part of the Chef Jeff uh, Project, Second Chance Catering, you cook some stuff that that harkens back to your time when you cooked uh, in, in the feds. Tell yes. us about that a little bit before we go. Yes. So we have several items that we use the term correctional. 
So our cinnamon rolls are called <laughs> correctional cinnamon rolls. Yeah. We have correctional fried chicken and we have correctional mm. cake. And those are some dishes that I cooked, items that I cooked in prison that I was known for. Even the prison guards would come to my unit and say, Henderson, where's the cinnamon rolls? <laughs> so I always had to have something for the COs so they wouldn't take my yeah, stash from me. Because I was hustling, you know, and these young kids are real entrepreneurs. And if we can convince them how to change the product, build strategy around a new product and have vision, we can save their lives and keep them out of the criminal justice system. And this is why it's important for folks like yourself. And I always say, you know, when I meet people up in the Red Rock the estates, the the wealthy people, they say, well, Chef Jeff, you know, I'm a white guy or a white girl or Asian person. I mean, these young black and brown kids, they won't listen to me. What can I tell them? Say, so you have a lot to tell them. Show them how you got that house up in Red Rock Country Club. Show them the strategies. What's the secret to getting access? Mm -hmm. Introduce them to some of the relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's what it boils down to is access. There's so many gifted people who never reach their full potential, who never mm -hmm. carve out their version of the American dream because they don't have the access to the folks who can make that happen. And that's something that I've been extremely good at. And uh, and those are some of the, the pieces of training what makes us unique in what we do. We're unorthodox. We don't have books and manuals and all these crazy curriculums that everyone says you have to have. No, we, we live by the moment and we create training and strategies around individual needs. There's no one shoe fits all size. That's why school didn't work for me. If they would have showed me a book or put up positive black men in my face and say, look at this guy who came from your community, who's ultra successful, here's the strategy and connected the dots. Also, if the schools, the teachers would have showed me where the money is. Them kids, they, we, you know, uh, what's that movie? Uh, uh, Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Yeah. Yeah. Show us where the money is. Show us yeah, how to get there. The that's, how, that's how you really <laughs> bring about change. Show us where that dot, where that bag is because they want to secure the bag. We want to secure the bag. Until we find out the strategies and have the relationships, we'll never get access and we'll continue to be spinning the wheel. And when you spin the wheel, you don't have access. You can't secure the bag. You have no income streams. That's when criminal tendencies start kicking in because everybody has the ability to become criminalized. Everyone has the ability to become criminalized. And criminalization is born out of desperation. Criminalization is born out of lacking you know, financial funds. Criminalization is born out of greed. So I don't care who you are, where you come from, what pedigree you come from. Everybody has that potential. And if somebody in, you know, in our audience wants to donate and support the Chef Jeff project at, um, and, and tell, tell me the name of your the second chance catering, where will they go yes, to do that? Yes. Second chance catering is the arm of the Chef Jeff project. And the only reason why I created Second Chance Catering, because it allows me to give these kids access. So if somebody up in Red Rock, I always say Red Rock because that's an ex exclusive community, that if somebody books us up there, guess what? My kids get to see something outside the neighborhood. So it's really a field trip for them. And we provide great food. But the organization is called the Chef Chef Project. And we are at Chef Chef, the Chef Chef Project dot org. And so we're going to start Perfect. up next week 
open fridge night, just like open mic, open fridge mic, where folks can come <laughs> in a three-hour period and drop off much-needed food for us to cook and sell in our pop-up fundraisers as well, too. So we need aluminum foil. We need plastic wrap. We need oil. We need butter. We okay. need bread. We need chicken. We need steak. We need seafood. All those things, because not only do we practice with these ingredients, I also feed these kids and send them home, you know, with a takeout bag Aww. so they can have food at home too. And they're always whispered to me when other kids aren't around, say, Chef Jeff, um, can I take some for my mom? Chef Jeff, can I take some for my brother and my sister? Whether it's a slice of cake, whether it's a little bit of banana pudding, whether it's a little bit of extra spaghetti bolognese. And so a lot of our containers that we, we hope to sell food out of to raise money to pay the bills goes towards these kids taking food home to their families. Well, Chef, thank you. For you are an inspiration, brother. Yeah, we, it, we've come a long way since we had that coffee at uh, Vesta downtown. And yes, you, you do some incredible work and uh, I, I appreciate you. I see yes. you. I recognize the work you're doing. I value you and, and what you're doing with these young men and women. There's nothing short of extraordinary. And you know what you taught us today about resiliency, I know you're gonna pass uh, it on to them. You're gonna pay it forward to them uh, because like you said, we're all gonna have adversity and, yes. and we all have what we need yeah. to, to create resiliency out of it, right? And, and to create something from that you know, hardship, you know, that grit that gets us through it and gets us to the other side. And, and your your life is an example of that. And the fact that you're passing it on now and paying it forward uh, is really meaningful. So uh, thechefjeffproject.com. .org. Yes. I mean, .org. Yes. yes, thank you, Christy. Yeah. Thechefjeffproject.org. Uh, this is my friend, Chef Jeff Henderson. Show him the money. Show him the money, guys. Show him the money, baby. <laughs> Why not, you know? And we've Everybody wants to drink. And yes. we, we thank you, Chef. And uh, with that, we close this amazing episode of Purpose on Purpose, Overcoming Adversity and Caring Resiliency. Chef, Christy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bless you both. Yeah. Thank you, Dario. Thank you.